Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Architect Tomorrow. I'm pleased to be joined by Ted today. Uh, Ted and I are going to talk about a bunch of different software engineering and technology leadership topics. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, and so Ted, perhaps if we can kick off with a bit of an introduction to yourself, give us a bit of background. And I'm particularly interested in like how you got into technology. I'm always interested in that story for everyone that comes on the channel. Let's see, I've been a developer, uh, speaker and author and quote unquote thought leader. Um, I'm currently, last several positions have been all uh, management focused, uh, leadership focused. And how I got into technology actually is a, a little bit of a backward story because um, I am one of those who was never actually classically trained as okay. a developer. My degree is in international relations which seems particularly relevant and poignant right now, given you know, the affairs of the world as we, as we record this. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of you know, what I studied in college was you know, economics, politics, uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology, um, you know, philosophy, whole bunch of different, it's a smorgasbord of the you know, the traditional quote unquote liberal arts. Yep. And um, I'd always been interested in technology, but I'd never really considered it as a career until one day, uh, one of my roommates, I was looking for a job. And one of my roommates, he was the son of an IBM research fellow. So he always knew that he was going to be a programmer. And another one, his dad, I think had worked somewhere in IT for a while. His mom was an accountant. And we were flipping through the uh, school paper looking for jobs. And there was a company I was advertising looking for a C++ Windows programmer. Okay. That kind of tells you about how old I am, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were actually working on writing a C++ Windows implementation of a board game that we enjoyed, a board game called Supremacy, okay. which is very similar to Risk, but you right. add in economics and nuclear weapons. And we wanted to build this and specifically we wanted to build it so that we could play it amongst ourselves online. We we're going to get like six different phone lines into the house, into the apartment because it allows for up to six players. And um, so we'd been working on that when we run across this ad and I'm like, Oh yeah, no, they're not interested in me. Come on. They're looking for professional programmers. He's like, dude, what does it hurt to interview? And then, then Oliver, he did something completely unconscionable. He double dog dared me to interview. And I, I recognize that that may be a particularly American euphemism, but I mean, a double dog dare, this is where like all of your credibility as a human being is on the line. I mean, if you don't take up the dare. I mean, it's little known fact, if people, you know, the whole series of Jackass movies was started because of a double dog dare, right? I dare oh, you right, to okay. do something so, no, I don't know that for certain, but it's that <laughs> kind of, you know. And so um, I went and interviewed and out of 35 candidates, I was one of four finalists and surprised the hell out of myself to be very blunt. And from that point forward, it was pretty clear that I could be a programmer because I actually knew more than a lot of the folks who were graduating university with a degree in computer science because I was programming, you know, and I was doing it just for fun. I was doing more programming on my own than most people were doing as part of their homework assignments. And the hard part at that point was just 
getting people to take a chance or getting that break. And um, ironically, the, the person who gave me that break, uh, Mike Cohn, now one of the big scrum guys in the world, Mountain Goat Software. Okay. And um, his, I mean, the main way that he, he didn't actually ask any of the background or degree or anything. He basically said, here's a three-page written test on C++, C, and Windows. Answer these questions. And later, he showed me and another one of the guys working for him at the time. <clears throat> he showed us some of the submissions he got from people who had, you know, PhDs in computer science. And these were these were not hard things. This was like write a C function to reverse the contents of a character string. Right. Right. What does the post message API do in Windows? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of the answers that came back were just beyond bad. And so it's really, I mean, ever since literally my entry into the industry, I have really been aware of the fact that, you know, your, your credentials on paper don't necessarily map to your ability to do the job. And it's been something that I've actually been very, very interested in um, and, and, you know, very much an advocate for reform. You know, I fundamentally believe that how most companies do interviewing in this industry is just broken, just fundamentally broken. And uh, that we as an industry really have a lot of work to do to try to fix that because it's really about fixing perception. You know, it's, oh, well, you know, we, we give people these leak code, you know, problems, you know, to test their ability to reason and think, yeah, let's test yours while we're at it. <laughs> Uh, you know, what, what exactly is the job going to be writing algorithms and, and, you know, I mean, show me how you reverse a linked list here on the whiteboard to test whether or not you can uh, move a button on the web form three pixels to the right. Because those two things have everything to do with each other, right? This is, this is kind of like, hey, I'm looking for a band to play at my wedding. So yeah. tell me your thoughts on music composition theory. No, you just need somebody. You just want to see it. You want to see a demo tape. You want to see, can they play the funky chicken? That's all you can. It's interesting, about. isn't it? The whole, the difference between academ academia and real lived kind of, you know, hands-on experience is, 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 you know, you'd expect there to be hopefully some connection between those two and that academia kind of grounds you and provides you with, but, but I, but I'm with you. I, I, so I, I actually just, so you know, I come from that classical computer science background, but it was, I, I was already kind of passionate, a passionate techie, kind of taking things apart and programming and things before I was at university. And I'd already come across Linux before uni, which was a great help. And, you know, first year of uni was basically, you know, 90% getting your head around Linux. And that was, you know, a, a doddle for me. I already <laughs> knew that. So it's, it's interesting, like passionate people uh, who don't necessarily come from that classical background, I think approach the problem in a different way. And that creates really cool, you know, teams where people come up there, the problems in from a different perspective. And I, and I really value that. I think, yeah, I think people over index on you can only go into this career path if you've got that piece of paper. Like you said, I just, yeah, I, I don't subscribe to that. I think professionalization is an interesting topic we've covered on other Architect Tomorrow videos. I think that's a slightly different thing, but just this expectation that someone comes out of college or, you know, has a degree and, and therefore then can do this is, is something. This, probably... this is where the international relations background and particularly the philosophy background comes into play because 
One of the things you frequently want to do when you study international relations is to figure out, you know, why certain things happen, right? Why did why do we do it this way? What what has caused it? You know, some people will today in the in the technology space call this root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. The fun thing is root cause analysis by its very name assumes there's only one root cause. And in many cases, things are very, very you know, multi, um, multi-causal and they're all yeah. you know, contributing factors, et cetera, et cetera. And in this particular case, right, there's a couple of things, right? First, <clears throat> um, when we, when we say the word, I mean, you, you touched on without necessarily realizing it, you touched on one of my hot buttons because you talked about being passionate, Right. Now, the fun thing about the word passion is if you look at the actual definition of the word, it suggests that you are feeling emotions such that your rational faculties have deserted you. We talk okay. about crimes of passion. We talk about the passion of the Christ. Hmm. And let's stop and think for just a moment here. Is that really what you want when you're looking to hire people? Because that's what shows up in job descriptions all the time. Right. I'm, I'm in the middle of a job search right now, and I can't tell you how many times I see we're looking for passionate individuals. So you you want somebody who is so overcome with emotion that they can't think straight. You want that <laughs> with your engineering team? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Is that, the passion part of this is really a deeper uh, conversation around motivation. And part of the reason why managers frequently want to hire people who are passionate is because the belief is if you're passionate, you're already self-motivated. I don't have to motivate you. You're going to want to come in and do 40, 50, 60 hour work weeks without me as your boss having to do anything. And the problem with this is, yeah, I could hire somebody who's really, really excited about this, but what happens when what you believe and what I believe differ and diverge, mm. right? And so this is why whenever I've actually started thinking about hiring, this is where we go back and say, well, what is it I really care about? Well, motivation is hard. And so, you know, yes, it would be great if somebody already brings a certain amount of motivation to the table. But at the same time, there has to be a recognition that as a manager, part of my responsibility is to understand what makes you tick and understand how to tap into the motivation that you already have. Right. And one of the things that universities typically don't do is they don't do a great job of translating passion into something that is useful because universities serve a very, very important purpose. Before we just start bashing university, universities frequently, they are much more focused. Academia in general is generally much more focused around theory. And that theory is absolutely critical when you get to a certain point in your career. Does knowing how, you know, does knowing how a, um, you know, does knowing how a tree works, does that really help you in building a web app? No, but understanding a tree, understanding some of the algorithms around trees, understanding just the various concept of tree with leaves and nodes and so forth helps you understand the document object model helps you understand the composite design pattern, helps you understand that, yeah, this is an interesting and useful data structure that shows up in a variety of places. And so much of what we're seeing today, you got all these boot camps who are, you know, 
doing they're, they're indexing completely the other direction. Screw theory. We're not going to teach you any of the computer science stuff. Yeah, just we are just kind of yeah, we're up. just going to mm -hmm. teach you. You know, we're going to teach you React. We're going to teach you yep. a NoSQL, usually Mongo. We're going to teach you maybe some Node.js. Go, right? And you don't ever really spend any time studying any of the theory. If you're lucky, you'll land someplace where a team will, you know, somebody on the team will take you under your under their wing yeah. and slowly teach you some of that theory. So I have um I have this sort of phrase that I use, which is um you know do you need uh, yeah. Michelin star chefs who can prepare meals from raw ingredients, or can you get away with people that can just reheat a pre-prepared meal? Because I think that that I see. I mean, I'm obviously painting extremes uh, here, but I think that but kind of but that's that is a perfectly useful tactic. Again, philosophically, if you mm. take things to their extreme, right now, bear in mind that that's not necessarily a great framework for making decisions. But it's a really useful way for doing analysis. Take things to their extreme, and where do we end up? Right? You need both. You absolutely yeah. need both. Yeah. Let me back up. The best developers in the world need both in order to be able to understand some of the theory and see how that theory echoes down through all of the different technologies. But they also have the practical ability to say, ah, okay, you know what? It's time the theory needs to step away. And I've got to actually sling some code right now. So let me write some code or let me grab some existing code and tweak it as it needs to be. Or let me grab a concept. I mean, that was the whole, you know, design patterns thing. Yeah. Design yeah. patterns, everybody thought meant reusable code when in fact, what these really were, were concepts. Mm -hmm. They were modes of thinking. They were an approach. And you may actually recode the same pattern three times because each time the context is slightly different. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there was a fascinating uh, talk at the ISA event recently about, about software patterns uh, and also decision-making as a software architect as well, which was, which was really interesting, like the whole kind of how do you sort of park the, the tendency to just go with what everyone's sort of hyped and, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, let's use microservices. I mean, actually, actually it's like, no, uh, you know, when it comes to like a shared library or, um, you know, a remote procedure call, there are pros and cons. It's not just about going with what looks best on your CV. It's actually, you know, kind of about making the right trade-offs and the design decisions. So, yeah, no, be careful I'm, about you've got to be yeah. careful about RDD, resume-driven development. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It just, interestingly enough, somebody wrote a very long article around the idea of building web applications today with hashtag no framework is basically saying, look, frameworks are useful as long as you agree with them completely, but understand they lock you into a certain mindset. They lock you into a certain way of thinking. And that in fact, you can, in many cases, accomplish many of the same things and you have a greater degree of control if you get out of the framework and go back to just straight vanilla JS, right? Let's just do JavaScript. You look at some of the brouhaha over some of the CSS frameworks, Tailwind, mm -hmm is the latest and greatest, right? And I remember when there was a um, smaller, more mute, muted brouhaha for Bootstrap. But, you know, again, the, the anytime you work with a framework, <clears throat> the framework's author or authors, plural, they make decisions. And mm. they, you know, the very definition of a framework is this is something that you hang off of. It's not just something you can grab and use when you choose, as opposed to a library which you can choose to use as much or as little as you desire. Mm -hmm. And part of the thing there is there are 
you know, one of the things that he makes, the argument that he makes, one of the, the downsides to the whole thing is what he calls the framework tax, specifically that, you know, if you don't understand what's going on inside the framework, then you're, you know, you're, you're losing sight of where the framework actually meets the platform that you're working yeah. on. Right. And this is why for years, for 20 years, 25 years, I've been telling developers, you always want to understand one level below the level at which you work. And this implies, and, and I remember there's a book on my shelf still back from the, the, the era of Windows programming, books entitled Windows Plus Plus by a gentleman by the name of Paul DeLacia, where he actually goes and builds his own C++ Windows programming framework. He built his own MFC if you will, Microsoft Foundation classes, because he looked, I mean, he looked at so many people were doing that and said, I'm a smart guy. Why can't I create one of these? What, what's, you know, what, if everybody's doing it, it's got to be something that I could do too. And more importantly, he really encouraged me, you know, as a young impressionable reader, the idea of diving in and building something like that for yourself, understand some of the, the, tools and principles underneath, particularly because at the time, even both Borland and Microsoft made the source code for their respective frameworks available to dive in and look and see what's going on. I would be curious sometime if you run a poll, I would be curious to know how many listeners to this video actually have looked at the source code to React or actually have looked at the source code to Angular. Or Svelte, or any of the other jQuery. Because of course, there's no it's a, it's a, there's an overhead, and there's a trade-off, isn't there? You're trading off these decisions that have already been made for you against things yep. like performance, or maybe you know extensibility, or forward compatibility, or you know you name another illity that might be impacted by by the trade-off decision. So um, yeah, no, I, 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 it's really interesting, isn't it? The number of I mean, it's been a while since I've been a, a full-on uh, developer, and I and I remember the hardest area to keep on top of top of was all the front end. Uh, JavaScript libraries and CSS frameworks because that just seems to change every week. Like you know, the latest fashionable things. I think React and Angular seem to have been sort of have stuck around for a bit now. But you know that that world. It, you know, I, I'd be kidding myself if I thought I had any idea what's going on that world these days because it's just moved so much from when I was. But last. the funny thing is that world actually, the presentation layer of software that is a very very common thing, right? Because if you go back twenty years. It's the same story, except this time we're not talking about client-side JavaScript frameworks. We're talking about server-side Java yeah. web frameworks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A buddy of mine, Neil yeah. Ford, wrote a book that he actually doesn't really want to admit to anymore, where he did a uh, sort of a survey of a half a dozen popular web frameworks at the time. And he said he kept getting people coming up to him and saying, oh, I love that book. When are you going to do another one like it? He's like, never. Because that book was obsolete almost literally the day it shipped. It shipped <laughs> yeah. because new frameworks came along, and I mean tapestry. You know, a good a, a friend of mine, right? Guy I used to speak with on the No Fluff tour, Howard Shipped. That was his baby. He built tapestry. He owned it. He loved it. Right? Howard doesn't work on tapestry anymore because does anybody even remember that it exists? Everybody today uses Spring, but we lost sight of the fact that there was a time. 20 years ago, when there were a ton of different, you know, nano containers and Pico containers, containers to contain your components that would execute on the server, you know, 
part of the thing, and this is again where some of the international relations background comes back, is to understand that there are historical forces at work mm. and that in many cases we see the same things show up. Why do we keep creating all these new frameworks? Because a developer frequently reaches a point where they begin to understand some of those underlying forces and they start to say, ooh, ooh, I want to take a stab at trying to build one of these myself as well. And, you know, eight times out of 10, they get a little bit into it and go, oh, yeah, no, this is crap. Never mind. They throw it away. One time out of 10, they get to a point where it's like, you know, I can kind of see how this and they keep it up as kind of a personal project. The other one time out of 10, other people start using it. They're like, this is great. It totally fixes the blah, blah, blah problem from React or from Angular. And suddenly it becomes its own thing, right? You get a couple of other committers, et cetera. And, you know, that is a useful learning exercise for the individuals involved. Not necessarily a great bet for a company, right? But it's definitely a useful exercise. And frankly, the, the longer you go, the more you begin to realize that everything is built that way. Every, all these different programming languages that we use today, they were they all started that way too, with very, very few exceptions. They started on, as somebody's pet project. I mean, look at Linux. I mean, the operating system itself is, you know, as a result of Linux Torvalds going, well, I think I can build something, build something better, yeah. right? And then other people yeah. kind of, you know, uh, got, got involved in, in in all that. And I know there's BSD and things like that as well that predate that. But um, yeah, this kind of tink, this almost like tinker culture. Oh, I think I can tinker with this and I or I can I can create a new you know, make I suppose the maker culture now, which I know is more more hardware, but this kind of desire to kind of uh, you know improve and and uh, iterate, as it were. But Ted, I'm really keen that we talk also about your uh, leap from being a hands-on developer into being a technology leader and, and manager and coach mentor. I, I'd really, uh, firstly, talk to me about when it was that kind of happened and what was that something that you decided to do or was that sort of thrust upon you? And then let's, let's talk a bit about the sort of distinctions and differences there. Well, the latter question is easy to answer. It was definitely something that I willingly embraced. Um, I can remember very clearly back in 1995 working for Mike Cohn and Mike was talking about his own transition from developer into manager. He was the director of development, then later became vice president of development at that particular company. And, you know, we were talking and he was talking about, you know, at a certain point you make a decision, blah, blah, blah. And I remember, you know, looking at this guy and going, no way, no way on God's green earth that I am ever going to ever be not technical. Now, the interesting thing is I didn't quite understand the nuance there because you could still be technical and be a, a, be in management. And I think that's one of the yeah. things that people lose sight of. Yeah. What they naively assume, and this is where again some of the the you know some of the philosophical you know discussion begins to come into play. You know, as a manager, what do you really do? Right, Mike. Mike's job was not to write code. He did so primarily as a way to relieve some stress. So usually Friday, shortly after lunch, Mike would close the door to his office. He would fire up Borland C++ and he would work on our applications about box. You remember those, right? Help Mm -hmm. about. And our about, uh, we had the most gold plated about box in that application (laughs) you will ever find because Mike 
that was how Mike blew off some steam after, you know, 36 hours of doing what managers do, which is all about relationships. Mm. And Mike, um, you know, whether he knew it or not, Mike was actually giving me something to kind of look at and prepare against as I started my own management journey. Because a lot of people, when you come, when you get into the management thing, they think it's like technical lead, where you have to be all developer and all manager all the time. And this is where we start getting into, again, looking at things from you know, other places, being able to compare and contrast other forces. This is what led me to realize that this is very similar to what we see in the sports world, where you see players becoming coaches, Yeah. right? And there's a reason why the coach is on the sideline, right? Now, we do have the occasional player who has been around so long and has such a deep understanding of the game that they, the, you know, frequently the, the sports announcers will talk about, oh, so-and-so is a coach on the field. Yeah, because they've been around for 20 years and they can see things developing because they've been there, done that so often. But there are a lot of coaches, particularly in the, you know, the American football, the oblong, you know, not the round ball, but the, you know, we don't actually play the football with our foot. <laughs> it's a very interesting game. Um, you know, that's so many coaches are people who've never actually set foot on the field because the responsibility of a coach is frequently different than that of a player. In my own personal case, my journey to becoming a manager was because I took a very, very deliberate look at my resume because my long-term goal, right? My long-term goal is to become a CTO of a company somewhere. And, you know, uh, my grandfather owned his own business at one point. And the beautiful thing about that is the business makes money whether you're working or not. And it's like, that's a great lifestyle. I want that lifestyle. Um, but if I wanted to be a CTO, right, regardless of how many hours you put in during the day, if I wanted to be that, the one thing that was missing from my resume was experience leading people, right? right? I could do it because I'd done it. I'd been an advisor. I'd been, you know, consultant. I'd often gone in and talked to VPs and CTOs about, you know, you should look at it this way, look at it that way. But none of that was showing up on a resume. So about five, six years ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to not pursue so much of the individual thought leader stuff, right? You know, the smartest guy in the room kind of thing that you often see when you've got, you know, people, speakers, authors, et cetera, right? And instead, I'm going to start looking for roles where I'm going to be building teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, three companies now in a row, you know, first one was a startup. I and two other guys, we started our own consulting company, got it to about 25, 30 people. Second one was working for a company of, at the time, 400 that later grew to 1,200. So this was kind of my experience with the, the hockey stick startup. Now, granted, hiring in at 400 is definitely, you're not getting as much of the startup experience, but I'd already done that because I'd already done the bootstrapped, you know, we got to about 30 some odd people. Uh, and then most recently at Rock Mortgage. And in each of those cases, these were leading teams or leading teams of teams. Yeah. Because that was the thing that was missing on my resume. And I went at it with very much the same approach that I did programming, which was to say, all right, there's things I know, there's things I think I know. And then there's all these things that I probably don't even realize that I don't know, right? The things you don't know that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, this comes from some philosophy and, and knowledge, right? Knowledge about knowledge. 
And so went out and read a ton of books. And believe me, if you think that there are a lot of programming books out there in the Amazon.com catalog, you should try management books, <laughs> right? There are people who have been writing books on management for longer than our industry has been alive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and frankly, what I discovered, um, I mean, I genuinely enjoy it. A lot of people get into management like, ah, this is what I have to do. I genuinely enjoy it because it's an entirely different set of problems than what we deal with as developers. But that's, um, and that's exactly my next point was going to be, I remember we were preparing for this uh, conversation, the, the, the uncomfortable move I think people make from being a hands-on developer or engineer into you know, leadership or, or management. And I know there's a distinction which perhaps we can also talk about. Um, I personally found that really, really uncomfortable, right? Going from being really hands-on, you know, seeing stuff happen when I, you know, committed code and, and, and you know, uh, you know, check, check, testing and that real satisfaction, that gratification you get from building stuff and doing stuff yourself versus kind of realizing actually delivery was now through others and through coaching and mentoring and building my team and hiring, as you said earlier, kind of hiring the right people and getting them to kind of work well together and sort of leading them on the journey that there, there was a kind of an emptiness left by that. It was like, well, hang on, what, but what am I really doing? Yeah, it, it, and, and it was interesting. I, someone from HR actually sat me down and said, you know, what, Oliver, it's perfectly normal, <laughs> you know, the feeling you're going through. And I just kind of wondered whether you had a similar sort of experience. How did you kind of navigate that jump from, you know, kind of being very technical and development sort of focused to kind of the kind of human sort of leadership sort of side? Well, it's interesting because, um, I mean, I, again, I knew what I was getting into. Right. Um, in some respects, because I'd done some of the I'd done some of the reading. Right. Uh, you know, my I'd also seen some of this played out firsthand because my dad was an executive in the plastics industry. And so I'd seen, you know, I'd grown up with somebody who frequently was, you know, leading teams or leading a department, et cetera. And so, you know, in some respects, it's like, OK, yeah, I get it. This is what this is what the job entails. Right. But it's interesting because. While I was at Smartsheet, I was building a team of developer advocates, right? Developer relations, DevRel. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> and one of the first guys I hired on that team, I didn't even know that that, you know, existed when I hired him to be a developer. And he's gone on to be very, very successful within the DevRel space. But I remember we were sitting at a conference, right? Two of us were kind of working the booth at this conference, first conference that we'd done as a company. And he's like, you know, it feels weird. I'm like, what feels weird I, you know you kind of get that prickling on the back of your neck like we're about to have a very important conversation and i wasn't quite thinking that we were i thought we were just talking about what we we're going to do for lunch here he's like you know it's kind of weird because when i was a developer i mean i'm, I'm creating things but as a devrel i mean you create samples you give talks you blah 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 but you're not creating anything directly and i said oh no 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 you're looking at it wrong you need to think about it in terms of what is the level of impact that you're having. Right. As a individual contributor, you can produce X amount of code, right? You can make do X number of pull requests per day. You can you modify X number of code, lines of code, right number of lines of code, et cetera. We can look at that very directly in terms of your contribution, but your fingers can only move so fast. I think it was the Association Computing Machinery did an interesting study a while back where they actually compared the number of keystrokes 
to the number of CPU instructions that were produced by your particular programming language. And for C and C++ and Java and C Sharp, it's actually about one to one or 1 1.5 to one. Languages like Lisp and Smalltalk, it's literally thousands to one, which is what led people to say that those languages are much more productive because you get a lot more CPU instructions out, blah, 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 blah. The point is there's a force multiplier effect at work here, right? And when you stand up, at a conference and you deliver a presentation about JavaScript or you deliver a presentation about you know, React or you deliver a presentation, that's you making a number of keystrokes, but you are now saving. I mean, assuming you're doing the presentation you know, for the benefit of the attendees, as opposed to for the benefit of the company that's paying you to be there, we call that a sales pitch, right? Assuming you're doing one of those presentations, you are steering them clear. You are actually now, if you have made everybody in that room twice as effective at what they do, or even 1.5 times as effective. Yeah. Now, if there are hundred people in that room, you are now a 150X or 200X developer advocate. It's you that, just it's that delivery, it's that delivery yeah. for others, isn't it? It's that realization that that really sets people up to be effective as leaders right and that's what a real you know that that's that's part of the the value of management and leadership is to look at those obstacles and we frequent when we talk about this in a technology capacity we frequently think about that as oh well yeah obstacles in terms of which which framework should we use angular react mm. i'm sorry child no that decision is not the most important decision you'll make as the leader of a team. The most important decision you'll make as a leader of a team is, for example, hmm, so-and-so is becoming quieter and quieter during our stand-up meetings. I wonder what's going on. Right. And in our next one-on-one, -on -one, which, by the way, if you're an engineering manager and you don't have weekly one-on-ones with your team, do that now. Schedule right. those. Those are the most important, most sacrosanct meetings you can have with your team. And don't talk about how the project is going. Use it to check in on your people. Hey, Oliver, you've been kind of quiet in stand-up. Everything okay? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I just don't know if I'm in it anymore. I just don't know. I'm just not feeling it anymore, right? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, A, pandemic, you know, war going on in the world. I can understand, you know, talk to me, you know. Mm. You don't have to be the therapist, but checking in with your people, checking in with what's going on, you know. I, I think that was something I learned um, myself. Uh, uh, yeah, it's very relatable because I think as a development lead or yeah, a tech manager and coming from being hands-on, I think the initial emphasis is definitely on, right, I need to be making sure I'm making the right technical decisions. And then I think the penny drops, like you just said, which is actually, no, I need to become a people, more of a people person, which is easier for some than others, right? And some people- Well, and that's, that's the worst part of this is, is you're a developer and you're really good at making computers do what you want. You've people learned all harder. the skills. You can't, right? you can't do that with people. Yeah, because people not only are not as easy to program. I mean, please show me the human programming language. I would love to see it. I really would. And that's where psychology comes in a little bit. But people are also completely non-deterministic mm -hmm. because, you know, that conversation with Oliver that worked last year, now Oliver's in a different place, right? And Oliver's like, yeah, I'm really questioning whether or not I want to be at the company. And the, the conversation a year ago was about burnout. Now it's about, 
Oliver has just had a conversation with one of his colleagues at a different company, and he's discovering that they're paying them twice what he's making here. And he's thinking about getting married and starting a family and having a lot more expenses. And yeah, and yeah this is the, I think I'm worth more than you're paying me conversation, which is a very- And none, none of that has got anything to do with the choice of framework or coding style or whatever, right? It's yep. about the person and what's going on with them. So no, I'm, I'm, Empathetic leadership is super, super important, but I think it's, it took me quite a while in my career for that penny to drop, right? I was, I think I was always all about being technically excellent and my team being technically excellent. And I think that's that kind of engineering. That's how you were rewarded when you were technically excellent, right? And this goes back to BF Skinner and rats and psychology, right? When you pushed the technical excellence lever, when you went off and studied a little bit more about JavaScript or studied a little bit more about React, pulled the lever, got a treat. And mm -hmm. so you keep going back to that. I mean, mm -hmm. in many respects, you know, yes, we're sentient creatures, but we also fall into habits and patterns too. And more importantly, yeah. we get into these, these thoughts. You know, this is where some of the philosophy becomes really helpful as you examine your own thinking, examine how you got to a particular way of thinking. As a technical contributor, right? You are rewarded for your technical expertise. And then when you get to a point where you make that shift into management and to one of your points, management and leadership are very different things. You can be a leader without being a manager and people frequently are managers without being leaders. The best is when you're both a manager yeah. and a leader, but this is where we often talk about leading by influence versus leading by authority. And it's mm -hmm. important to recognize the difference between those two. Mm. And many people, when they first get into that role, right, they think, oh, cool. I'm the manager. I get to make all the decisions. <laughs> Bitch, no, you don't want to be making all the decisions. That is exactly the wrong way to be thinking about it. Predominantly because you actually, that implies that you're the smartest person in the room, which means you have to be staying up to date with all of that technology yeah. stuff. You yeah. actually want to hire a team that's smarter than you, but then you also, this, you want to talk about being uncomfortable. Now you're in a position where you sometimes have to make a decision because you have the authority and you're doing so when yeah. you don't understand the issues as well as the other two people on your team who are arguing about it. And now you have to make a decision without perfect information. Oh, that feels weird. Uh, that's this is where... Go this ahead. is where the imposter syndrome. This is where the imposter syndrome kicks in, right? It's like all of a sudden you you become painfully aware. I think that you're no longer as connected to the the nuts and bolts as uh, yeah, and, and the programming sort of decisions as, as and, sort uh, of. Well, for me anyway. I'm speaking. I'm speaking sort of personally. I think, and also then for me, I then moved into sort of the architect role where, you know, and I'm interested in your take on the sort of software architect role. But um, again, you, you kind of then have this more influencing kind of role, unless it's this sort of um, hands-on but yeah no, i'd be really interested in your take actually on the where does the sort of development lead and development manager start and stop versus the technical software architect what's what's your kind of experience of that working well so real quick 30 seconds on something i would not blame the hesitation around making those decisions on imposter syndrome right you can still suffer from imposter syndrome oh my gosh i have no idea what i'm doing and i'm scared that everybody's going to find figure it out you can know what you're doing and still feel uncomfortable making that decision. The two are yeah. not necessarily the same because part of this is required to make decisions without perfect knowledge, mm. right? When I play chess, you and I play chess, I have perfect knowledge of what's on the board, 
there are other games where I don't have perfect knowledge. And if I could, I would make a different decision, but I don't. So I often have to make a decision based on bets, based on, well, I think this is how this is going to come out. And so based on what I think, this is what we should do. And that kind of reasoning around ambiguity, oh man, that triggers the lizard brain back here. We do not like, amb- we fear ambiguity the same way we fear a predator, right? right. So be right. careful of, of putting too much. There are a lot of people who are talking a lot about imposter syndrome and anytime you feel doubt, oh, it's imposter syndrome. No, it's reasonable to feel doubt when you don't have all of the information. And even when you do, you're, you're, you're reasoning about the future. That's ambiguity. That's what that's triggering, mm. not just imposter syndrome. Yeah. Going back to your other question. Um, <clears throat> so one of the big things that frequently comes up when I talk about architects and architecture to companies is, well, should the architect be the team lead? Should the architect be the manager? And I will actually argue against that fairly regularly because particularly if you think about the goal of management is relationships. It's the relationship of me to my team, me to my peers, because I often have to look around what's going on around my team and figure out what other teams, part of what I need to do is see down the road where my team is going, understand what obstacles might be there, start looking for ways to clear those obstacles out, talking to the HR folks, talking to the other teams that are building things that we depend on, talking to my boss to understand the direction of the larger company. It's all about relationships, right? Architecture, on the other hand, is much more technically focused, right? And in many respects, the architect is is thinking about scope, much Mm -hmm. larger scope of things. Now, because both of these feel like we're moving up, right? We're going from a team, say maybe a microservice, up to a larger fabric of services, up to maybe a full domain or collection of things, et cetera. That feels like it's the same sort of elevation of scope that happens in management. So it becomes pretty easy to say, oh, well, the higher you go in scope, the higher you should move up the org tree. Except trying to understand what's going on with a team of 125 people is a very, very different problem than understanding you know, how exactly we're gonna get these two dozen different microservices and associated data storage tiers, et cetera. So the architect is definitely, in my view, an individual contributor. They're focused on the technology and they're focused on making those big picture decisions and they're focused on the large scope perspective, which is yeah. different from a principal technologist who frequently will have deep, deep knowledge about a particular area of the tooling, the domain, the what have you, right? And these are all three viable paths for somebody in the technology space. I'm going to become the person who really, really understands this particular, you know, area, component, you know, virtual machine. Some of the folks we see at the companies that are, you know, people who are the language architect, Right, the Brian Getz in the Java world, the you know Anders Halsberg or the Mads Torgerson in the C Sharp world, etc. <clears throat> These are people who are becoming your principal scientists because they can build something that will frequently have that ripple effect across the rest of the company, and they are the expert on that thing. Right, 
your architect is the one who looks at things and how do we weld all of these different parts together in a way that makes sense, understanding a little bit of the business and the direction and so forth, and producing some guidance, answering some questions about what we're trying to build. And the manager is somebody who's basically looking around and saying, okay, they've got that handled, they've got that handled, everything else is on me. Yeah. And I think the architect is more maybe akin to the leader kind of leading not through authority, but through um, influence kind of, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Cause there's, there's the two forms of leadership, right? Mm. There's leadership by influence and leadership by authority. Now the drawback here is, <clears throat> and this is where people often start to get to, well, maybe we should give the architect some authority because influence can only take you so far. Mm. Right. The definition for me as to whether or not you are a manager is whether or not you have hiring and firing authority. Can I fire you if you screw up? Am I responsible for your, you know, your activities? If you, you know, if, if clients walk in and you moon them from your desk, right? <laughs> am I the one who has to go to you and say, dude, wildly inappropriate, you're fired, right? Because if I am, then I am your manager, right? And so yeah. part of my responsibility is not only to hold you accountable, but to help you grow, et cetera, et cetera. Do I have hiring and firing authority? And if I do, then that is, I mean, that's the trump card, if you will. And we really need to come up with a better word from that because I don't really like the word, the first part of that phrase. Yeah, right? no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Right, the, the whatever. Anyway. Yeah. That's that's the final weapon, right? That's the nuclear option, if you will, in, in any sort of work relationship is to say, okay, do this or you're fired. And an architect who has leadership by influence, <clears throat> you can you can vest some authority in them and say, this is we are going to follow whatever that guy decides or whatever that girl decides, right? Mm. Whatever she comes up with, that will be the architecture for how we build this thing going forward. And if you have any technical questions, you go to her. This is the manager investing some authority in the architect, right? And the architect now says, oh, okay, well, based on that, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Or the architect can be purely an advisor, and each of the individual teams gets to make their own decision. This is one of those things that you really have to sort of explicitly decide mm -hmm. when you start thinking about, you know, as you build out your organization. Ideally, the CTO has had this conversation out loud, ideally with some of their direct reports, so that we can know that, okay, so-and-so is the chief architect, which means that they're going to be thinking about that big picture and they're gonna be making those decisions. And if we're trying, you know, they're gonna be steering the ship, if you will, mm -hmm. from a technology perspective. And part of their responsibility is to meet with us, the rest of us here on the executive team understand the direction the business is going so that they can start to think about what we need to do technically in order to support where we want to go, you know, business wise, businessly from their big, you know, big scope decisions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There are a lot of architects who are frequently invested with a certain amount of responsibility. It's your job to make sure our systems stay up and running. It's a, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but they have no actual authority so that then when they say, oh, well, you know, security is a big concern of ours. So this is the way we should, you know, these are the components we should use. These are the libraries we should use. And the team says, nah, I don't want to do that because I'm not actually held accountable 
to whether or not our code is secure. I'm held accountable to whether or not our code shipped, right? Again, understanding some of the forces at work, being able yeah. to see some of that stuff playing out. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do your security thing at the end of the project if we have any time left. Right. This is yeah. and, and this is how insecure software gets built. Uh, well, I, I laugh because it, it unfortunately still happens. Right. Um, the time cost quality triangle is is often skewed in, in favor of the time and, and the, the lower cost. Right. Um, but uh, but talking of sort of trade offs as well and kind of, I suppose, tensions between different groups. I know that you've got some interesting sort of perspectives on on DevOps. And I just wanted to kind of get your take on how well do you think in 2022 how well do you think the devops concept is kind of working do you think it's kind of it's kind of productive and gelled and people get it or do you think it's kind of skewed one way or the other what's what's your take on devops in 2022 well as with most things that have reached the point of being a being being their own name right um anytime something reach, reaches name recognition status in our industry the answer is always going to be, it depends, right? Um, there are definitely certain companies who are, you know, doing DevOps well, mm -hmm. and there are a lot more companies numerically who are struggling to understand what the whole point is. And part of this is because we frequently take a concept and we try to turn it into an artifact, right? And I mean, this happened with patterns, right? We mentioned that earlier. Patterns, these were concepts and people said, great, so how do we reuse, you know, how do we, how do we create reusable code out of that? And therein lay the seeds of their own destruction. The same thing has happened around Agile, right? As soon as we came out with Agile, you know, one of the signatories to the Agile Manifesto has actually uh, didn't speak at an Agile conference for 20 years because he could see that almost immediately the whole idea of people over process was turning into, so we need a better process, right? And that's where Scrum and Kanban, you know, right. people became so focused on the process of Agile, they lost sight of the fact that it was supposed to be about people over process. And that in many respects, Agile is about examining your process and determining if you need to fix your process. And in many respects, if you go back to the Agile Manifesto, it really is, again, an exercise in philosophy. What are we right. actually trying to do here and mm -hmm. how well are we doing it and where are we breaking down and how do we improve that? How do we fix that? And Scrum was one set of answers for one company at one time that we then tried to generalize and turn into a best practice for everybody, right? By the way, there are no such things as best practices. If you want me Well, to it's a bit like it. architecture frameworks as well, right? I mean, anything that's sort of- Oh God, oh God. And, and is tailored to the context. I mean, because what I liked about when I was when I was uh, a scrum master or working on agile project or an architect on agile projects was actually the kind of in, you know the retrospective process and actually going, do you know what is is this process working for us or actually do we need to sort of trim the sails and and and, and change direction? So I think any of these things that are applied, yeah, kind of just off the shelf, like oh hey, there's the answer to our problem. I think yeah, you're you're, you're running into a, a problem because the the nuances around your business or your product, your ship, you're looking to ship, need to be factored into the into the into the framework, right? Well, the thing is, if you look at if you look at Agile, right, the whole point of Agile, almost every aspect of any Agile process of any Agile, you know, you go back and read all the books, you go back and look at some of the precursors to Agile, the whole extreme programming movement, XP, 
they are almost all, 95% of everything about Agile is built around one concept, feedback, and specifically mm -hmm. feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Yep. And interestingly enough, for anybody who's kind of in, you know curious, there is another individual who had been thinking about that 40 years before the creation of the Agile Manifesto. Is this the Deming, the Deming uh, nope. cycle? Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. Nope. This is actually a gentleman by the name of John Boyd. Okay. If you've never heard of John Boyd, it's because you've never flown military aircraft. Because <laughs> Boyd was, a, he was known as, uh, what was it, 62nd Boyd, 32nd Boyd, something like that where the nickname came from the fact that he could get on your six. In other words, he could get behind you in a position mm -hmm. to shoot you down in 60 seconds or less. Because Boyd had an innate and intuitive understanding of some of the physics of air combat. And then he later said, okay, I need to, I need to sit down and study this a little bit because he was watching U.S. Air Force aircraft designers create a number of aircraft that were actually terrible. They, they actually were, you know, horrible aircraft to actually try to fight in. And as part of his understanding of, of air combat physics, he came to realize that there is a tight loop that's going on. It's what he called the OODA loop. Um, orient, observe, decide, act. Yeah, the OODA loop is John Boyd. And... A lot of people say, okay, so the goal here is to get through the loop as fast as possible, right? How many iterations through the loop mm -hmm. can I get? No, child. The goal is to reduce the size of the loop as much as possible. Because if I am a developer and I build something and it has a bug in it and we have to you know, build and then we go through like a quarterly release cycle and then QA has to download it and they have to run through their script and we discover mm -hmm. three months later that that bug is there, right? That means that my OODA loop is three months in size. Yeah. And a large part of what Agile was saying, part of the reason for the on-site customer, part of the reason for unit tests, part of the reason for, you know, delivery, right, was to tighten up that loop so that now going from three months down to one week, right? That means that we are much, much, much more able to respond to some of the things that emerge, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about reducing the size of that OODA loop. It's feedback. I mean, it's literally a cycle of feedback. And part of the DevOps approach was to say, yes, and in order to be able to do those things within the Agile space, we have to be able to reduce the loop, such as when somebody discovers a bug, how quickly can we describe it in such a way that a developer could start working on it? Such as, how quickly can I know that my software is in fact still up and running? How quickly can, right? And part of the thing that I watch a number of companies do as we approach this whole DevOps subject is they tend to index really, really hard on the dev side of things, but they tend to under index or even forget about the ops side of things because, to, you know, frequently DevOps, people come in, it's like, all right, it's time to change everything. And the ops people are like, no, <laughs> no, because these two worlds are diametrically opposed to one another. Yeah. The yeah. ops folk are about getting things to a running state and then don't touch anything. Whereas the dev folks are like, 
we need to change something because by definition, we need to introduce a new feature, we need to fix a bug, we need to whatever. One is all about change, the other is all about resisting change. And we've now thrown them together into the same room and, and everyone said, yeah, and then we just go from there. So it's like attack and defense, isn't it? It's like the, diff the different positions are going back to your sporting analogies. It's, it's you know, it, it, there's, there's some parallels there, right? And there's tremendous value to be had from bringing the awareness of the ops folks to the developer folks, mm -hmm. right? To say, look, this is what it's like when, but too much of the time, because much of the DevOps world really came from the developer side of things, right? Companies like ThoughtWorks, which are legions of developers, not legions of system administrators and operations staff, the developers kind of rolled in and said, okay, so this is how we'll do ops from now on. And the ops folks were like, that is some of the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Are you, are you kidding me right now? Now, over time, we kind of figured out how to do things such that the ops folks could be you know, reassured that, oh, okay, no, I get it, this works. But it took a very long time. And again, so much of the time when people start talking about DevOps, it's about the things, it's about the tools, it's about the artifacts. Yeah. Because to them, yeah, we're, yeah, we do DevOps. We've got Terraform right there. We've got AWS over there. We've got- It's about the tool chain, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And no, it's really about sizing that, you're bringing that OODA loop down to the point where, you know, realistically speaking, let's, let's measure the length of the chain, right? You know, yes, ideally unit tests would catch any bugs, but mm -hmm. look, you can fail with 100% code coverage. It's been demonstrated repeatedly over and over again. You can't assume that they're all going to get caught here in a unit test loop cycle. And unit tests, by definition, are testing only a unit of work, not a full, you know, yeah. scope of a transaction kind of thing. Yeah. And unit yeah. tests are actually really terrible at spotting anything at, you know, sort of a, a, a human you know, user interface level, right? Mm. A unit test can't really spot that the button is red and is supposed to be green, particularly if the unit test is written to test to see if it's red, right? So how, you know, from, from the moment the developer does a thing to the moment that an incident is posted, right? Or the moment that the customer service rep says, hey, we've got a problem. I just got a customer complaint about blah, 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 right? You really want to think about your length of pipeline. DevOps only actually goes to, you know, did, is the software still up and running? But really, there's a whole support question here as well, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's, it's a concept. It's a mindset. And it's not just a tool chain. It feels like in some instances, it's, it's just the developers trying to push through a faster way to push stuff to production, right? It's like, it's, it's sold, I've seen in many organizations, as a way of just getting to market faster rather than actually seeing, you know, having the safety features that you've just talked about around the kind of, you know, feedback loop on what's going live and is it working and do we need to correct it? Uh, I kind of, I, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of agree that the, there is an over-indexing on the sort of development and engineering and getting it out there side and perhaps not If you think about it, if you think about it, all of those iterations and so forth is really about developers failing faster. Yeah. It's really what it is, right? That's yeah. part of the reason we write unit tests. We know we're going to fail. Is a question of knowing how did we fail, mm. right? And the ops side of the house is about not failing. And so within these two lie the tension that yeah. frequently occurs. And, you know, I have met 
CTOs and VPs who said, oh, yeah, 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 once we get this full DevOps pipeline in place, we'll be able to fire all of our system administrators. And I'm like, no, 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 that is absolutely not the right way to think about this. You are just asking for, you know, deeper troubles to show up yeah. with that mindset. But that's a lot of, I mean, they look at the tool chain because they're not thinking abstractly. They're not thinking at this higher level of, of you know, what I would refer to as the philosophy of DevOps and the philosophy of software, then they, you know, sure. Once, once we get, you know, once we get the, the DevOps tool chain in place, once we get all the microservices, once we get, you know, the, it's the silver bullet, right? What's that? It's the silver bullet. Yeah. Yep. And so Ted, look, it, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Is there an, is there anything that you perhaps like to, um, to sort of promote or shout out about while I give you the opportunity before we close? Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, yeah, obviously if anybody's watching this and is curious, I'd love to, you know, I'd love an opportunity to bring some of this, you know, this philosophy and bring some of this leadership and management and, you know, all this hard won experience, right? Because, you know, good decisions come from wisdom. Do you know where wisdom comes from? bad decisions. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly I would love opportunities to do that. But the other thing that I would, you know, really, really, you know, suggest anybody who's listening to this, if you're currently, you know, if you're currently in an individual contributor role, think really hard, right? I mean, we often look, look up the org chart, so to speak, and say, yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, if I want to make more money, if I want to grow my career, et cetera, you know, the, the path is to go up into management, look at your organization and see whether or not they have VP level individual yeah. contributors, right? And if they don't, you might start talking with folks in the HR department or talking with your boss, your leaders, your managers, whatever the particular euphemism at your company is and say, hey, assume I wanted to you know, I assume I wanted to continue to be promoted. Assume I want to be here 20 years. I'm not just going to be a senior software engineer for 20 years. Mm. Where do I go? What does my career path look like? And if the company can't answer that sufficiently, maybe time to advocate for what do our career ladders look like, right? How do I grow within this place? And, you know, that's, that's assuming that you make the decision that, yeah, I don't really ever want to have you know, other people reporting to me because, you know, humans are messy. Humans are also fascinating. And in many respects, it's, it's very much like being parents right. in that you would, you know, for a while as an individual, you want to celebrate your own accomplishments. You want to be the one on stage receiving the kudos. But then at a certain point, you realize, I want to see other people on stage. And some of the best feelings I've had or when my team was celebrated and I'm way the hell in the back of the room, yeah, yeah. no lights anywhere, but my team is up there. Right. Yeah. And they are getting all of the kudos and they are getting all of the success. And it's like, yeah, that that's, that's extraordinarily heartwarming. And it requires a certain amount of sacrifice of ego. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a position where you don't feel like you can do that, don't go into management. Just don't, it's not for you. Right. If you're not willing to set aside your ego, if you're if you're in it for because the, the ego moments will come, they will be there. Right. Yeah. They, they, it may not be on stage, but when the CIO says in a senior executive meeting, oh, and by the way, the team that, you know, 
that 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 reports to tell you they're, they're killing it they're absolutely being successful it's like yeah that's the best that's compliment cool. you got as a leader right, right? Yeah. yeah um those moments will be there without mm-hmm. question it's really more a question of your own mindsets question of your own you know what do you want out of the job and if you if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say no i want to i want to make a team successful as opposed to i want to be successful then i would absolutely encourage people to dive in and you know start start doing for management the same things you did for technology start looking at the books start looking at the the you know, the other folks around that are doing it this way, look for mentors, et cetera. I was going to say that's the, that would be, yeah, my, my add to that would be like the coach and the mentor that you can yep. find to come yep. help you on your way. Yep. Mm. yep, yep. It can be extraordinarily rewarding. It can be uh, absolutely critical. And one of the biggest things that every manager needs to know is, you know, succession planning. Who steps mm-hmm. into my chair if I need to step out of it, Right. And if you're at a company that is actively thinking about succession planning, they will have programs in place to help you learn how to be a good manager. If you're at a company that doesn't think a lot about succession planning, you are one good manager's decision to take a sabbatical away from being a bad company. Because you're really, it's it's up to chance as to who steps into that chair at that point and they may be good, they may not be, they may be great, but they haven't been trained in any way. They have no idea of the context they're stepping into. Look around at your company, decide you know, what you want to, and always be thinking about that next step period, but be thinking, do you want us, do you want to step into a management role? And if so, start looking for opportunities to do leadership by influence so that you can demonstrate some leadership so that then you can be given the authority to lead. But really have that conversation with yourself. Right. Mm. And, you know, like I said, if, if anybody says, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. We should, I, I want to work for that guy. Talk to your HR folks and tell them to give me a call. I would love to, <laughs> you know, it's the job search for a programmer is pretty swift right now. Yeah. You know, uh, job search for senior executive leaders, not so much. It's still very much a, you know, months long process. So yeah. It's a really good chance if you're watching this in the middle part of 2022. <laughs> Who knows? I hope not. My bank account certainly hopes I'm hired. By <laughs> well, Ted, it's been, been brilliant talking to you. Uh, very insightful as I thought it would be. And um, I hope to twist your arm into coming back again in the future. Um, Ow, okay. <laughs> and actually, Neil... Uh, I'm talking to Neil Ford actually about getting him on. So maybe when when I do that um, with uh, with Mark as well, perhaps I, perhaps I can kind of persuade you to come on first. Oh, oh, Mark and Mark and Neil are two of uh, some of my best friends in the world, awesome. and so I think the way you entice them on your show is to tell them that you interviewed me about architecture, and one of the first things I said that Neil and Mark are full of crap, and everything <laughs> they say is wrong. And you know, did did they want to have and, you know, they'll know exactly what I'm doing. Well, 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 luckily, Mark has already agreed. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's uh, coming up. So, um, but no, thank, thanks, thanks again, Ted. I look forward to speaking to you again really soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Okay.